Episode 256 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the much-loved English stage, film and television actor Ian Lavender, who will always be best remembered for playing Private Pike in the enormously popular BBC TV sitcom Dad's Army. Other telly shows Ian memorably appeared in included Come Back Mrs Noah, The Glums, The Hello Goodbye Man, Goodnight Sweetheart, Casualty and EastEnders. Ian died in 2024 at the age of 77. My interview with him took place in 1998 at his home in Essex, where, a few years after battling cancer, he was greatly enjoying himself both professionally and personally, and he taught me through his life from the very beginning. Born in the shadow of the Austin Motorworks, as then was. Are you from a showbiz family? Not at all. My, my dad was a policeman. My mum was a housewife. Right, they're not with us anymore. No, no. Dad went 20 years and mum about 15 years ago. Right. You have brothers and sisters? I've got one brother, still lives in Birmingham. Right, what does he do? He's, he works for Cadbury's. He's in, in, in the printing part of Cadbury's. And about to retire, well, soon. Yeah. Swine. That's Paul, my brother Paul. Right. Have you always had free chocolate from him whilst he's been working there? Well, we did at the start. There's all that sort of story that anybody who worked there, they could eat as much they like as they work yeah. it well. After about two days, they stopped doing it. Yeah, and it smells lovely around the factory. My school was, was in Bourneville. Were there no thespians in, in your family at all? No? None whatsoever. Really? None whatsoever. So what started it, or what ages did you get enthusiastic about it all? I played Mozart. I think that was the 250th anniversary of his birth or death. Not too much between them, unfortunately. In school production, in school production when I was about seven. But I, only, but I only got the part because I could play the minuet in F. Right. And I got a costume in the dressing-up box. Right. Uh, I think I was seven then, and I got into trouble for not telling my music teacher I was going to play in public. Um, <laughs> was that the school in Bourneville you're talking about? In Longbridge, that was my infant school. Right. And did that give you the inspiration to want to go into acting? I don't know, really. <laughs> the next part I got was Herod. And I only got that part because my, my mother had the script. Dorothy L. Sayers, A Man Born to be King, uh, from the radio. Yeah. And I had the script, so I got the part. Right. And Did then you... I shocked everybody um, when, I was back, when I was going up to uh, junior school. So that's still only seven. By saying I wanted to be an actor. I, I can still see my mother's face <laughs> sort of trying to suppress the, the smile. Do you know what it was at that stage? I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. I always wanted to be. I mean, we weren't a theatre-going family at all. Mm. And in fact, brought up on, if, if anything, brought up on variety and so on, mm. um, at the Hippodrome and so on, around Birmingham, yeah. the, the last knockings of variety and, and pantomime. So was it a case of you leaving school and going to stage school somewhere? Yeah, I went to, I went to uh, the Bristol Vic School. Right. Um, right. 19, 19 when I went. Right. I was about the youngest there, 65 to 67. Right. And when you left, did you think that it would be easy, that you would be... Did anyone ever tell you that you'd be a star and think at early stages? Oh, no, nothing like that. They try to knock in everything, all the stuffing out of you. No, that was one of the good things. And I'm not sure that drama schools, necessarily all drama schools, do, do that nowadays. But uh, we were made very aware mm. of just what we were going into. Mm. So how did it go for you when you left? Did you immediately get a good part? So what was the big break for you? Went into rep in, in Canterbury for nine months. I left in high dudgeon because they wouldn't give me a rise from £8.10 to £9. 
because I thought, well, I, I deserve nine pounds. That, that, after all, was what I was getting as a grant. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I took less to get turned professional. Eight pounds, ten shillings I got at Canterbury, my first job. And I left there. Got a part in a, a television play, which I thought was a nice little part, because we started tomorrow. And it turned out that uh, when I got there the next morning, I didn't bother reading it anymore, because I thought it would just be that one scene I'd read the day before. And it, it was a three-hander with Jane Hilton and Angela Badley, and it was the lead. Mm. And... Dear Barry Evans, who died so sadly last year, had been taken ill, and uh, so it was literally a last-minute replacement. What was your first TV break, then? That was a television play for Rediffusion, as then was, uh, in Kingsway, called Flowers at My Feet, and they wanted me to change my name because they wanted to have Ian Lavender in Flowers at My Feet. Oh, right, is that right? Yes. So, Lavender's your real name, then, is it? Well, you wouldn't choose it, would you? I mean, not, 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 as, a, not as a stage name. Oh, yes. Have you ever considered changing it into what? No, I never wanted to change it. It was only later that I thought, I'm glad I didn't even consider it, because, I mean, I, would have been, I think I would have been very hurtful to my parents. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Why doesn't he want to be known? It never arose. There was a guy at drama school who had to change his name, uh, you know, because, because there was already somebody in, in equity mm. with that name, and he had to change his name, and he was having terrible trouble. We'd, uh, we're going, we're going through the telephone directory and things like that, and no, couldn't come up with anything of that and that, and relations and family names and so on, and eventually came in and said, I've got it, I've got it, I've found my name. What? And he decided to call himself by the name of his road where he lived in Clifton called Vivian Terrace. <laughs> <laughs> he was talked out of it by the principal. <laughs> but we thought it was rather nice and Vivian Terrace. What first brought you to public fame and attention? Well, that was Dad's. Right. And when did you get that? Uh, that was that? three, four months after leaving Rep. Oh. I was making an advert. It was only going to go out for two days. It was for the Easter edition of Woman's Own. Oh. And I was a young husband, so engrossed in the Easter edition that he was trying to spread marmalade on his cornflakes. Mm. Now, this is not an easy piece of business. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I got the I got a phone call from my agent that uh, I'd got this part. Right. I'd been to see David three times and David Croft. Yeah, and it'd be, right. it'd be very nice, wouldn't it? It'd be lovely six mm. six tellies that summer. Wee, terrific! In a, a comedy series. Good lord! I didn't even know who with at that point. But it was oh, going to be a comedy series about it was about the Home Guard. Did you know anything about the Home Guard? No, not really. And I got it. Oh, that's nice. And that's all it was. It was a, it was a nice job for the summer. It was six tellies. Great. Terrific. Did you think that's all it would last for? Well, I was so green that, I mean, I, I didn't even have the, the hope that anybody has that if you get into a series that, well, it might go on, might, might make more. I mean, no, honestly, I mean, I was so green behind the ears that all I was, really thought I got was a job for six weeks, eight weeks, six episodes, terrific, lovely. And then it slightly occurred to me that, oh, they're quite famous people who are in it. Mm. Well, that's a bit terrifying, yeah, and so on. And I mean, I turned up at... Shepherd's Bush for the first day's filming and saw a coach and everybody had got suitcases and it hadn't occurred to me that we might not come home that night hmm. so I'd never stayed in a hotel hotel before in my life ever so I dashed back not very far just around the corner and uh, got a case and off we went filming and that was it how friendly were you with the rest of the cast of that program oh enormously I mean one, one of the reasons <clears throat> why it went on so long, not, ne not necessarily why it's, it has remained popular so long, but why, why we went on for the ten years was because we all got on so well and loved working together and there's no question that we wouldn't be available next year or anything like that. 
You were always very much the kid in the stories, but were you the kid as far as the rest of the cast were concerned? Oh, certainly when we started. Mm. Yes. Oh, oh, yes. I mean, I, I didn't know one end of a studio from the other. Right. What's that camera got a light on for? Oh, oh, it's working. Uh, I mean, I knew nothing about it. They didn't teach you that at drama school, you see, in those days. Mm. They didn't teach you television or, or film or radio technique or anything like that. No. How did you feel being cast as this idiot boy? Well, I never thought of him as an idiot. I actually didn't. Naive. Yes, and in fact, in, in fact, if, 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 although the, 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 the soubriquet, the epithet of the stupid boy, it was usually followed by, oh, hang on a minute, and when he saw that actually he was, he was possibly right. So I never thought him as stupid. Is that an expression which has followed you and dogged you for the rest of your life since? Do people shout at you in the street and things? Oh, they certainly used to. Mm. But playing golf now, people, it sort of takes probably five or six holes before they say, I've got to say it. I've got to say, I've got to say, stupid boy. Or they often say, silly boy, and get it wrong. Uh, <laughs> I don't point it out. But um, those are, they certainly used to shout it. Um, oh, stupid boy, does your mother know you're out? Well, depends. Uh, people will say, doesn't it upset you? Why? Why should it upset you? Um, I mean, if that's going to upset you, then don't do the job. Mm. Um, Did you get lots of fan mail when, you were, when it was at its peak? Yeah, and, 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 and still do get the same, same groups of people, um, which are generally kids up to about 12, 13, 14, and mums. I'm thinking more of the, you know, the young girls when you were actually doing it. Were you quite a heartthrob in those days? In a word, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> this didn't any, happen. Did you get any memorable This, this, this disappointed me somewhat. I was not a heartthrob. I thought, hello, ah, I'm made now. No, no, it, it honestly was, it was, was it, it stopped around about 13, 14, and then it, the, the age group started again around about sort of 45, mums who wanted to mother me. Right. Not to say there aren't very attractive ladies of 45, but I wasn't thinking of those terms at that time. Mm. Were there no incidents like that of, of some glamorous young ladies trying to... No. No, I can honestly say never. Never. Honest. <laughs> you know, I can't even make one up. Now, what's your most memorable memory of, of Dad's Army? I think the most memorable moment of of an episode was the episode with Philip Maddock and the, the submariners, the German submariners, and, and, and sitting on top of that stepladder. You'll know we'll also go on the list, what is it, don't tell him, Pike. Well, I found it hysterically funny anyway, and I begged David, please don't do a reaction shot on me, I just can't keep my face straight, there's no way. So I've got to come to you for a reaction. I have to come to you for a reaction shot, there's no way. And if you watch it now, you see that David cuts away just a split second mm. too late, because I've gone. Mm. At, the top, at the top of that ladder, I've gone. But why, why it was memorable, honestly, was, was that, uh, you know, writers and, 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 and actors will spend weeks, episodes, establishing a, a catchphrase. Mm. You know, don't like it up, don't panic, you dirty old man, you know, you um, stepped her and so on. And it has to be set and set mm. and set and set until people are saying it. That was one line in one episode that went out one night. And honestly, the next day people were saying, don't tell him Pike in the street. Mm. No. It was quite extraordinary. And that's why that is a memorable moment in it. Too. Nobody saw it coming. Who were you closest to in the cast? Closest to, I suppose, was John Laurie. Mm. Uh, it's, it's sort of an invidious question. It sort of uh, implies that possibly we weren't close to the others. No, I was very close to John, right from the start. And I, I adored him as godparents to, to both my sons, as, as is Bill Pertwee. But loved them all, honestly. Really did. Um, mm. There were people who wouldn't necessarily be in your bosom but buddy mm. and we didn't live in each other's pockets anyway mm. you know we were together for 10 weeks a year 
we'd spend some time together, whether it be another job or going around for supper or round for a Sunday lunch or something. Mm. But it wasn't living in each other's pockets. We weren't... It wasn't a close-knit like that. Everybody got other work to do and places to be and, and things to do. But we, we did all enjoy each other. Mm. We knew each other extremely well by the end, and we all, of course, therefore knew everybody's bad bits as well. So uh, it must be very upsetting that so many of them have died. Um, it's, it's hard to describe. Yes, of course. I mean, it was horrible when Arthur died, when John... John Laurie, Jimmy. I didn't actually think this, the series would actually survive losing Jim because there was just a gap. James Beck. Yeah. Right, yeah. There was a big, enormous gap. And there would have been, no matter who it was. Mm. Um, but, we, but it did. On the other hand, uh, yes, of course, each individual death, death was sad. Nobody likes to lose a friend, and they were friends. They were mates. Because you've been regarded as something of a survivor since then, haven't you? Well, I stood a chance, and I was the youngest as well. Yeah. But what I was going to say was, uh, if they were still alive, I mean, John and Arnold would be over 100. Yeah. Jimmy Beck would be close to 70. <clears throat> no, he'd be 64, yeah. 65. Clive is 77. Yeah. Bill's in his 70s now, I think, yeah. just, just approaching. So they would be very old and possibly yeah. not enjoying life terribly. How close are you to Clive and Bill now? Oh, we're still just as close. Mm. As I was saying, we don't live in each other's pockets. I have to phone Bill tonight, as it, as, as it happens, about something totally different. How much um, do you see of them? Is it just at conventions and things? Um, it's more or less as, as, uh, as the paths cross. I mean, this year there's been, um, there's been a 30th anniversary and there's been a convention at, at the Dad's Army Society, and we all made an effort and went to that one because it was the 30th. And they do work hard, they work very hard, but I mean, you just can't, but there's one in York later in the year, I just can't be there, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm on stage in Worcester. But we all made the effort and, and made sure we were there and, and so on. And if those sort of path crossings don't happen, then yeah, we make sure we do. Mm. Clive calls up when he's over here, we've been to see Clive in, in Portugal, give Bill a call and might meet for a coffee or a beer if I'm down there or he's over here or he's in Cambridge goes and sees my ex-wife and uh, sees the boys in town mm. if I mean um, when he was down in Bournemouth he'd go and see Daniel because he was working down there and Daniel was down there at university mm. so it's not it's not a it's not a gross large effort we must see each other must see each other mm. must see each other but no notice that we haven't seen each other for probably six months and we're not going to and say oh well we'll just meet up for a pint or whatever has it always been popular around the world Yes, always. Australia and New Zealand, obviously, English-speaking countries. Um, but extremely <coughs> big in Holland and Belgium. What about Germany? Uh, I, don't know, uh, I don't know whether it's a, an urban myth or not, but we were told that they had sold one series to Germany. I think it was a gag. <laughs> I mean, so much that I think it was a gag. I never even checked up on whether it was so... Mm. But, but Scandinavia, but, but, but it goes out on public broadcasting in, in the States and so on. Um, how many letters do you get about it now and inquiries and things compared to how you did at its peak when it was on? Oh, not, not the volume that we did when it was on uh, originally. When it is on now, I mean, it's, it's just stopped going out now over the last six weeks. And when it's on it, uh, people... Oh, oh, I was all right. So it makes people interested again. I mean, today... No, actually, second post. But I'd say there's about about six and ten a day since it started going out again. And, and when it was on, as it's and it was being made, how many do you um, 
Oh, well, we, uh, most of it went to the, went to the BBC and, we, and, and we'd be presented with this pile of mm. stuff. Um, what, hundreds of letters then? Yes, it was, yeah. Mm. yeah. And did you have scarves sent to you and things like that and packed lunches and things? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've had medals sent to me and, and, and other cap badges. No, I've never, given, never sent a scarf. Were you ever mm. made an honorary member of a home guard or anything? You know, I think I was. It's a long time ago, all this, you know. I think I was up north somewhere. Good Lord, I've not thought about that since. Mm. But you've kept your scarf and your hat. Is it something you treasure? Oh, well, yes. I mean... It's, uh, <laughs> well, there's only one. I, I, I like mementos of everything I do. Mm. A little something. If I enjoy, if I join, enjoy being in that place, I might buy a little picture or mm. something of the garden or whatever. I mean, it was so intrinsically tied up with that scarf. Mm. Oh, I had to have that. Mm. Yes. The the series has made you something of a national institution. Do you like that? <laughs> oh, an institution. Oh. Um, everybody knows you and everybody loves you. Is that a nice feeling? Oh, it's a lovely feeling. Mm. It is. It is actually what's so lovely about I mean, all this who are in the past few weeks about the 30th anniversary you know, why do people still enjoy it well many you know, as many people as I will have, a, have, a, have a, a reason to give for why it still is but I mean it is a lovely feeling but I get people saying aren't you sick and tired of it that people still want to watch something mm. you made 30 years ago still want to talk about it well I have to admit there are times when you'd rather talk about something else when you're in the middle of a meal in a restaurant or whatever, you know, I mean, there are times when you don't want to talk about it. But it's immensely flattering that people mm. still f- view it with such affection. Mm. And if they were to come up to you and say, oh, that was crap. Do you know, that show, I mean, I think it was the worst thing that was ever on television. Yeah, that wouldn't be very pleasing, but, I mean, people don't. They just mm. say, oh, we did enjoy that. It's so nice. You know, the whole family watching. So, well, it's a very nice feeling, I mean, mm. that people should still enjoy something you did and there's this phenomenon of uh, the last 30 years that you can watch something that was made 30 years ago you know does it feel like 30 years not at all i mean well nothing feels like 30 years ago quite honestly not 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 just that i mean um, i still remember catches i took when i was 15 (laughs) (laughs) Um, as can everybody do you still watch the program oh yeah watch it because we actually enjoy it there was a time about ten years ago, round about then. I'll tell you exactly where it was, the Gulf War. I was in Leeds doing pantomime, and they repeated some dads. And uh, so I thought, oh, I might as well, I'll record that, because when I get home about midnight, there'll be something to watch. Mm. So I found myself, and realised at that moment, there was an awful realisation, about one o'clock in the morning, I'm watching a war. This is entertainment, because it all happened that day. I'm, I'm watching a war in my living room. That was an awful realisation. And switched it off and watched the episode of Dad's I recorded a couple of days earlier. And found I enjoyed it. It's not that I didn't like it, I knew them. There was no need to watch them. I've got the, yeah. I've got the videos anyway. Yeah, the scripts, yeah. So there's no reason to watch. Have you had any bizarre things where you've been in somewhere like Australia and someone's come up to you and said, Pike or something? Oh, yeah. John LeMessure and I were making a, a film in Spain, a place where it never went out, way before satellite. You know. We were sitting having a beer by the hotel pool in a corner. Not working that day, dozing and reading the paper. You know. Suddenly, we had a group of people standing around, just looking at us, speaking in Swedish or Norwegian. No, we don't, don't know which. And there we were, in a little hotel in the mountains in Spain, 
doing another job entirely, being viewed by, by Scandinavians <laughs> who hadn't come to Spain for that reason whatsoever. You know, yeah, that was a bit strange. Well, Mickey, when, when, when she was working out of, um, uh, with the Australian Opera in uh, Sydney and Melbourne, and when she got there and they took her to her apartment, etc., and so on, it was about three in the morning, and mm. she turned on the radio. So the first voice she heard was mine. Oh. Turned it on, and there was three in the morning. Radio, Dad's Army. Nice and she said, this was bizarre. Mm. Hang on, I've just left you. Yeah. You're 12,000 miles away. Turn on the radio. First first voice yeah. I hear is yours. Ah! Weird. Mm. How they, many episodes did you do in all? How many series did you do in in all? In all? Over the ten years, we did 80, 80 episodes, including sort of Christmas specials and things time. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so sort of seven, six and seven, making up 13 a year. And a film and a West End play as well. And a film? Well, it wasn't a play. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a collection of sketches with with right. lots of with, with with wartime songs around mm. it, and uh, this is how I met Michelle. She was the choreographer on it, and I had to dance dressed as a banana <laughs> in my dreams about having a banana again. Um, it? Found it a bit difficult. Right. <laughs> was it a problem getting other parts after that, or has it been ever since? Is it always a bit of a struggle? There's been swings and roundabouts. Yeah, there are a lot of parts I haven't got because oh. He's comedy. Mm. He does comedy. So don't necessarily see me as arch-villain murderer or, or Hamlet. But, on the other hand, all the other work I do because of it, and do because of it, still, you know, I mean, yes, it stopped me doing some things, but it's opened up a whole new vista of other things. I'd never have done pantomime, and I adore pantomime. Mm. I love it. So have you ever regretted doing Dad's Army? No. Not for a moment. No. Uh, I made a lot of friends, whether they're alive or not. They're still friends. It sounds, oh God, it sounds like it's an old age pensioner now, but I mean, I mean I've got such memories. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful times we had together. Of all the work you've done, what are you most proud of? Well, I am proud of Dad's. I'm very proud of the show I did at Cluid, which is the biography of Buster Keaton. It's a one man show. It was two men, a man and a woman, with um, Jackie Dankworth. Jackie played all the women in his life, all of the other characters, in, female characters in the story. Uh, yes, she was doing a lot of quick changing. I was doing a lot of quick changing from age 14 to 76. And he was, my, was, he was my god. That, now, that was all oh, 89, I think it was. 89. I was proud of that, because he was my god and is my god. If you'd had your perfect career what would you have liked to become a film star in Hollywood or an even bigger TV star over here or I don't know really especially when we came out of drama school we all thought we were the natural successor to Olivia Gilgood um, so. although on the other hand as I said earlier the, uh, the Vic School at Bristol didn't pull any punches and we knew we were going to a pretty pretty dicey arena as far as earning a living was concerned and the first thing that you face with is earning a living so Pretensions and corners have been knocked off, or a good deal of them have been knocked off even before you started. I don't mean for a moment the money in it for the money. God knows I'm not in it for money. What a place like the Bristol Old Vic, which I had a ball down because I back down there this year doing the ghost train. Oh, about to, Yes. Yeah. About to go up to Worcester to do Virginia Woolf. And it's no secret there's no money in that sort of yeah. uh, 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 that, that side of the theatre. Are you still very ambitious, though, showbiz-wise? My ambitions? Um, well, I suppose... Uh, this was a rambling slowly towards... Um, <laughs> was that 
No, I'm not in it solely to make money, but I see the money I can earn, be it large, small or indifferent, as a means to an end. The end being having as pleasant a life as possible. I think a lot of people imagine you must be a multi-millionaire from Dad's Army, don't they? Believe me, nobody makes money out of satellite television, and you don't need to just ask me. <laughs> no, we ain't. No, no, no. The BBC wages at the time. Are you allowed to reveal how much you've got? My first series... I was paid 60 guineas a show. That, that was 63 pounds per show. And I promise <coughs> you, the repeat fees are based on that. Oh, it's much better than 63 pounds, but it's yeah. based on that. Yeah. And I promise you, not a soul makes and not, not any sort of performer. Mm. I was playing golf with one of the um, gladiators. Mm. And I had a grand time with a lovely guy. And similarly, that's going out on... I think, is it Granada yeah, or whatever? Be, yeah. I wouldn't know because I sent the cable back. That was sort of my, my little protest against it. <laughs> and also the fact that the test series is over, so I didn't want it anymore. But they, just like everybody else, it's a pittance out of it. Where did you live when Dad's was at its peak? Putney and Wandsworth. Were you constantly people outside your door, knocking on your door and stuff? Oh, no, people were much more better behaved in those days, you know? Were they? Yeah. Oh, yes. Kids would come round. I'm not quite believe it, because yeah. even then I didn't really look like him, because mm. the hair wasn't flattened down. And, well, it, although not white, it was well grey. And couldn't quite believe it. Who's it? It's private bike. And you didn't, didn't know whether to say yes and spoil their illusion or lie to them. So you, you wore a wig throughout the uh, Dad's Army, then? No, it wasn't a wig. No. It's amazing what a bit of real cream will do. And a bit of uh, Morgan's pomade, I think it was in those days. You went grey very early then. Yes, I was totally grey by the time we finished. When we were doing the stage show for the um, I had my hair, hair dyed for the whole time. How old are you now? Do we know? I'm 52 now. 52, gosh. So you were very, very young when you did this show then? 22. Until you were 32 then? Until I was 32. Yeah, fantastic. Shaving closer every day. <laughs> Maybe know a bit about your first marriage. And your first wife was the mother of your yeah. two boys. Yeah. Maybe now how long the marriage lasted. Oh, we were married for seven years. Was that during the dad's army time? Yes. It was dissolved in 77, 76, 77. Was your success in dad's army in any way to blame, or, or the, the fame that you... Not at all. Right. It was nothing to do with it. You had your two sons. Tell us a bit about them. Got two gorgeous sons. Daniel and Sam. How difficult... Has it been or was it for them growing up with a famous father, especially the fame the way you were? No, I don't. Actually, I have asked them. Uh, Sam, when he went up to Oxford four years ago, said it was a bit of a shock to find that people were impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. People were impressed that you were my father. And they watched it. No, they were utterly blasé about it <clears throat> in that respect. You know, oh, no, he's in Dad's army. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's my dad. Most kids are very resilient in that way and just take things in the stride. It was, it was absolutely normal. Um, it wasn't as though things suddenly changed for them. Mm. That was it. And they were used to be going to fates and things, things like that. It was, it was the norm. Presumably I don't they... think they're ashamed of it. But I'm not sure that I'm going to ask them that question because they might give me the answer that I don't want. <coughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Presumably they lived with their mother when they grew up. Yeah. Um, and did you always see a lot of them? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we had lots of time together. We really did. Um, mm. That awful expression, quality time. We both strived, strove, strove, strived, stiffened. Uh, we both tried <laughs> um, to uh, 
to make it to make it as normal as possible. Mm. That, that it was perfectly normal that I I took them to school on Monday and possibly Tuesday or whatever and or picked them up whenever and whatever was going on. Uh, it might be midweek, it might be the weekends or whatever. How badly were you affected by having a broken marriage and how badly were the children affected, do you think? That you'd have to ask them. Nobody's unaffected by it, for them say. Nobody can be unaffected. It didn't make me very happy, despite the fact that it was my fault. Uh, because I'd been brought up that this didn't happen. Mm. You won't mm, say why uh, it's your fault. Your I met somebody else. Right. That was all. And that was yeah. Michelle, right? On the show, Dad's Army. Oh, yes, that's right. On the stage show. So you were, you were playing a banana in one sketch? One yes, I had to... Um, I was dreaming of having a banana after the war. This is Pike dreaming of Yes, and there was, there was a song, actually. There was a song, what a real song, When Can I Have a Banana Again? One of those things impinged on my memory. I shall never mm. forget it. I, still, I could sing it to you now. I won't, but I could. And I was this band, a six-foot banana. It's one of my strange claims to fame. Mm. I, I, I was, I've had fittings for a five-bar five gate. <laughs> I was the first person to be killed by a colour television set. Not on colour television, but by the first person to be killed by one, dropped mm. from a great height in Z cars. Some strange claims to fame. <coughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and Michelle's from America. You call her Mickey. This is her dad's pet name, probably. Was she living in America, but, but working over here? When no, she was born here. And they emigrated when <coughs> she was tiny. And she came back over here in the 60s when we were making all the musicals. Uh, half a sixpence. It was yes, it was the mid sixties, the, the classic period of, of, of the British musical film. Mm. And what she was came it? Back over here with um, choreographer called Anna White, right. and stayed. Mm. What was it about her that you fell in love with? Oh God knows. Well, no. I, what first intrigued me was who is this noisy little thing <laughs> who's making all this noise? We weren't used to it, you see. We were quite sedate crew, quiet. We didn't make a lot of noise in there, is it? More than the corner making thing. You go over there and you do this and throw that and then you go, hand it there, get over here. Who is this? Who is it? Bloody hell far. So that was the first thing I noticed. Mm. She was loud. How long did it take for the romance to develop? Well, we only got married six years ago. Oh, right. <laughs> but you were together fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah. Did the press give you quite a hard time when it was all changing your private life? One or two did. One or two did. There was one paper who threatened to be. They were going to be there on the day of the divorce and so on. In fact, it was Silla, Silla Black's baby wiped us off the front page. <laughs> Birth of her baby. Mm. <laughs> How did Michelle take to your two sons and vice versa? Oh, loved them. Still does. I think they've been very lucky. They've had a mum and a dad and somebody who is a mum and a dad, but not. You're a very proud dad, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Mm. Very proud of them. Very what they've both achieved. Mm. really have. Yeah, I'm very proud of them. Would you like either of them to go on to acting? Not at all. Or... No way. No way. <laughs> what are they going to do? Are they going to be businessmen, are they? Well, I, I, think, I think Sam has a, a sort of hankering towards you, to being journal. a hack. All oh, right, good. He's just had the first, his first uh, film review printed in a journal. I think, I think New Statesman, I think it was. And Daniel is, well, he's an animator. It's always, it's always been his thing. Animator? Yeah. That's good. It's almost shit, isn't it? Yeah. Almost. But, I mean, he takes great delight in telling me, well, you know, mm. So we, can all, we can already do without actors, Dad. Just give me a picture of you and I can animate you. <laughs> Thanks, son. Thank you. They can get you to do the narration, can't you, the voices. <laughs> Are you absolutely true when you say you're glad they didn't follow you, or would you secretly have liked them to have...? No. All three of us, Mum, Mickey and myself, have always said to them, we don't care what you, what you do. You owe us nothing. And as far as I'm concerned, all you owe me is, when I ask you, are you happy, you can look me in the eyes and say yes. Mm.
Why did you take so long before you got married to Nikki? Uh, well, neither of us asked each other at the right time. Mm. We kept on so on. And so you finally tied the knot when and where? When I was ill, just after the first operation. I take my life in my hands occasionally in reminder that actually I didn't need to get married because I got through the operation. <laughs> I was going to say, did, did you in any, to any extent get married because you thought you might not make it? Uh, but there, was, there was an element of that about it, mm. certainly. Um, it wasn't that I wanted to commit myself to, to Mickey. I could, I'm, um, I, in all honesty, I don't feel any more committed than before. But it did make a difference to Mickey. Yes, it made a difference to me, of course. You're still so madly in love with her, though, aren't yeah. you? Can tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, why not? Mm. Um, we're mates now, as well. Some of it to do, some of it to do with having been young. We do laugh a lot now. How responsible was she for your recovery? To what extent did she help you? Enormous. Oh, there was there was an awful headline in one paper. <clears throat> Love cured my cancer, which is not quite how I'd put it myself. No, I mean an enormous part of of the recovery was was her, the boys, friends. They were all the ones who kept me going away, and and that's what was translated as love cured my cancer. No, I didn't mean that at all. Do you have any regrets in life? No, there's nothing I would have changed, decisions, or I might have taken that part instead of that, or done that, or that. But no, nothing major, no. I've always been fascinated by going back to ifs and seeing why mm. I did that and did that and did that, and if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done that. Five years later, later wouldn't have happened. Mm. I, mean, I, I could trace getting the part of Dad's army back to the fact that one week I didn't have enough money to go off and have lunch when I was at drama school. So I got talking to a girl in the other, in the other year who had a friend who was an agent, but wasn't taking on any clients, but she was the only person that she knew in this country, and so eventually I, I had lunch with her. She came down quietly just to see Diana do something. I had lunch with her. I went to a vendor, could I take her, um, ask for advice, and so on. Yes, and so on. So, on. so She eventually became my agent and knew David Croft. Mm. Mm -hmm. Never met that lady if, I hadn't have, if I'd had enough money to go off for lunch that day. Mm. But... Was it their fate or what? But I mean, you can trace back ifs. But I, I, I see no point in tracing back and saying, if only I hadn't done it. You did it. What do you think would have become of Private Pike? Oh, Lord. How old would he be now? Hang on. How old would he be now? Uh, he'd be 76 now, or thereabouts. Oh, I think he'd have... He'd have certainly... Um, <laughs> <we'd>, <laughs> we did a spin-off uh, radio show called uh, it Sticks Out Half a Mile where I still work for the bank, but had we gone on any longer, but then John LeMessure died, so we didn't do any more, um, I'd left and gone to work for Woolworths. <laughs> but I don't think so quite. I think he'd have become a branch manager of a very small branch, possibly, or under-manager, retired at 60, and <laughs> disappeared into oblivion, but probably with the most gorgeous wife. Really? Yes, I reckon he might have. He might have pulled one of the most gorgeous birds because towards the end, I mean, he, he did have um, his, his first night out all night when they thought it had happened and it hadn't. Was with a very attractive blonde who found him attractive. I found this hopeful. I found this extremely hopeful. I think he'd still be wearing his scarf today. Oh, he would never have gone without a scarf. It would end, it probably ended up as a silk scarf. Oh. <laughs> Are you at the moment? Are you enjoying what you're doing, or do you have greater? greater? hopes for your career or are you quite happy? No, I honestly, I honestly want to carry on making a living by doing what I love doing. Mm. So whether it's pantomime, whether it's Edward Albee, whether it's a good night sweetheart or whether it's um, a musical mm. at the Barbican. I really do enjoy making a living this way. Mm. 
Oh, we're nearly making a living this way. But it was on Jimmy, Jimmy Beck's favourite phrase. What a funny way to nearly make a living. I mean, I do thank, I do thank my version of God for giving me the chance to get fit and healthy in order to do it again. Because you do have to be able to walk around to do it. Mm. So I've no overweening ambition to play any particular part. I've no overweening ambition to be doing television instead of theatre or film instead of. You're a happy bunny. I'm, I'm a pretty happy bunny now. Good. Glad to hear it. How would you like to be remembered one day? Oh, I mean, whatever you say is going to sound awful po-faced, isn't it? And, um, it would be nice if people still said what they say quite often now, either in letters or when you meet and chatting, and they say, thank you for all the pleasure you've given us. And it, it really is a very nice feeling. It really is. That you have given some pleasure to people. I never set out to change anybody's life um, by being an actor or whatever. I never, I never thought I was going to do that. I didn't presume to either, really. But it is nice when people say thank you, thank you for all the pleasure you've given us. And it'd be nice to think that there might be someone saying that whenever it is when I go. But is it not annoying that everyone will always remember you as Private Pike no matter what you do? No. no I don't find it annoying at all. You do something that at its height was watched by 20 million people on a Thursday night. You may well say I'm going, I'm, I'm going up to, to Worcester to do um, Virginia Woolf. Uh, and in that time, <coughs> if we sell every seat, I think about 30,000 people can see it. Which are you likely to be remembered for? 30,000 people might remember you for that. Um, oh, I hope it's going to be a reasonable performance that I give him, give him Worcester. But there was another 19,770,000 or 970,000 uh, people who saw you do Frank Pike. So it's inevitable they're going to remember you for that. Uh, I don't see any point in getting hot under the collar about that um, unless they thought you were crap and saying so to your face. Then that, no, that's not very nice. But you show me an actor where if you went to him I don't believe there's any actor around, and if there is, I'd like to meet him. Where if you went and said, right, here's a part in a new series. It could be six episodes, it could go on for ten years. It could make you very famous, it's going to make you very well known, it's going to make sure you work and, and get work for a long, long time, and people are going to love you for it. You show me the actress and say, what do I want that? You show me the actress and say, no, I don't want that sort of part. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be well-known. I don't want to go into television. I don't, I don't possibly want this new series to go on for another ten years. No, no, no. I don't believe he exists. Mm. Can you still do Pike's voice? The bass version of it, I suppose. I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, dear. Miss <laughs> Menring is a... I don't know anything like it. I don't, I've not done it for 20 years. No. Mr Menring, uh, Uncle Arthur... Was that, was that vaguely like it? Yeah, absolutely <laughs> <right>. <laughs>